Today we're in the middle of a transition. We, we were finished up the book of Romans a little while back. We took almost a year to go through the book of Romans. We took a five-week break, as Aaron mentioned, to focus on a study really on what we're all about as a church. And if you're new to the church or if you're, it's your first time here, I'd encourage you to listen to those to find out what we're all about as a church. Or maybe if you've been here for a while, even more, um, go back and listen to what we're all about as a church, that we're the church is special because of the bride of Christ. We're a gospel-centered community, and we're a community that's on mission together to not only be disciples, but make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so this morning now, we are getting into what we regularly do, is just preaching through a book of the Bible. And you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to a book that you may not read from a lot. It's the book of Nehemiah. And you may be wondering, what in the world are we doing going through the book of Nehemiah? You know, what, why, why do we pick that? Isn't that Old Testament stuff? Isn't that um, a, a historical book? Isn't that just like some guy's memoir about history, about what happened, about rebuilding these walls? Why in the world is that important to us? You ever, you ever wonder that as you're reading through books of the Old Testament? You know, it's only 13 chapters little background, give you a little background as we begin the book of Nehemiah. It's only 13 chapters. It's not very big. It it could even be called like a little booklet. I don't know how many pages it is in your Bible, but it's really short. It's a short read. It'll, It'll take you less than an hour in one sitting to read through it. And it was written like 2,500 years ago. So how in the world does a book written 2,500 years ago, this little small book, that it starts off in this bleak period of Israel's history, how does that relate to us? Well, I think you're going to find that it relates to us in a lot of ways. It relates to us in a lot of ways. But it's really an interesting book because you find this book in the context of God's people being displaced and God's people being scattered. And, and there's seemingly only this teeny little remnant of God's people left. You know, God had promised the nation of Israel that he would make them great. Through Abram, God called Abram this obscure guy in some land, Ur of Chaldees. He called them out of this land and says, if, if you have faith in me, I will bring you out of this land and, and take you into a promised land. And I'll make your offspring great, as numerous as the sand of the sea. And, and I'll bring you into a promised land and into an inheritance. And, and so for a while, if you look in Old Testament history, God did that. And God not only brought about all of his promises through Abram. He built a great nation. He delivered them out of bondage. He delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And, and there's wonderful accounts all throughout the Old Testament of, of God's might and God's power moving nations and, and to order his people to bring them into the promised land. And, and then you think this guy named David comes along. And David is raised up as this mighty and powerful king. And you think, maybe the hope of Israel is in this guy. And so David is raised up, who was otherwise seemingly an obscure guy. He was a shepherd from this family that really had, we thought, no bearing on history. And yet this shepherd, the last born, he, God raises him up. And then you think, wow, this guy's going to be an awesome king. And then David fails. He's not the greatest although he conquers all the nations around them, and you start to see, okay, God is bringing about a nation. And then through his son Solomon, he was, he was the richest man on the face of the earth at the time, and he was the wisest man, and he was astoundingly great until he failed. And then you see God's promises to, to bring about a great nation that they kind of come to fruition in Solomon, and they all fall apart in his son. 
And then you see that a few hundred years later, there's these people called the Assyrians. You ever heard of those in history? The Assyrians, they come along and they, they take away what had now been split into two. Israel was split into two kingdoms. The, the ten tribes were split into the north and two tribes in, in the south in Judah. And, and so the Assyrians come and they take these ten tribes and they take them far away. And they disperse them. They kill a lot of people. They disperse them. And they bring foreigners in to inhabit the land of Israel. So Israel now, the northern kingdom, is full of foreigners. And then 120 years later, a little history lesson here, 120 years later, this, this nation called the Babylonians, this empire, comes along. And this guy named Nebuchadnezzar comes. And, and he lays siege to Israel, to Judah. And he lays siege to Jerusalem. And somewhere around 580 or so, he takes all of the people of Judah, all the people who were important or had any money or any standing and any education, any influence, all the nobles, anybody with money. He takes all these people back to Babylon. And so all that's left is this really weak remnant that's unprotected. And he burns down all the gates in, in Jerusalem. They burns down the gates and he wrecks the city walls, tears down the temple and nothing is left. And you're wondering, what in the world is God doing? What is God doing? And so if you look throughout redemptive history, you wonder, how is God going to build his people? How is God going to bring about his purposes in the earth? And so that's why Nehemiah is important because Nehemiah functions to show us how God builds and rebuilds and restores his people. You know, God began to do that. If you, if you are aware of a little bit of biblical history, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were actually probably one book combined, maybe written by Ezra or Ezra and Nehemiah. At least a lot of Nehemiah was his memoirs. And under King Cyrus, then Darius, then Xerxes, and a bunch of other kings here, when they switched over from the Babylonians to the Persians, God used all these people to bring about his plans. And so what has happened is a few years prior to this book, about 70 years prior, God sent people back to the land to begin building the temple. And that kind of got thwarted. A guy named Cyrus, things fall apart. And then under King Darius, the temple rebuilding is funded and is supported again. And then it's, it's finished, but it's not as impressive as Solomon's temple. And then there's this, this guy named Xerxes. You might have heard of him. I'm placing this for you in biblical history because there's the book of Esther. Esther was a queen to King Xerxes. And then now Xerxes' son, Artaxerxes, is who is the king when we find the book of Nehemiah written. And you wonder, what, in all, what does all this ancient history have to do with us? Why should we care about all this ancient history? You know, at first glance, the book of Nehemiah seems to be about some guy going back and rebuilding a wall in a city and then having some reforms. And then it ends kind of oddly, if you've read the book of Nehemiah. It ends oddly with... Nehemiah praying that God would remember him for his reforms, even if they didn't fully get fulfilled and carried out. It's a story with great expectations at the beginning. If you start to read the book of Nehemiah, it opens up with these great expectations after chapter 1, because Nehemiah will be sent back to help rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild its walls and reestablish things but then the way it ends is that you're, you're wanting more. You're, it doesn't satisfy. And you're looking for more when you're done. And it's kind of like this, this sweet dessert on an empty stomach. You know, it, it seems good at first, but it doesn't really fill you up. And it leaves you hoping for more. So why in the world should we be preaching through the book of Nehemiah? Why should you come back every Sunday? 
Because Nehemiah is all about how God brings his people back into his place, how God rebuilds and restores his people. It's a great story of rebuilding. And if you're going to summarize the whole book, you could just say rebuilding. But really, what I'd like to to see it as is that God rebuilds and restores. This is why Nehemiah is important. Because we need to see that God rebuilds and restores. God rebuilds. God restores. Now that should be important to us because all of us are aware that, that things need rebuilding. Things need restoring. That It doesn't seem like God's promises have been fully carried out yet. How will God rebuild? How will he restore? Who is this God who rebuilds and restores? You know, all throughout the book, Nehemiah is going to reveal some important things to us. He's going to reveal who is this God who restores. We're going to see who the God is who restores and rebuilds. We're going to see who God uses to rebuild. We're going to see how God rebuilds. We're going to see God's purposes in rebuilding, and we're going to see that there's a future hope for rebuilding. I love Nehemiah because it, it touches in one small little book, these 13 chapters, it touches on some of the most important themes in the entire Bible. It really touches on, on, on most of the important themes in the Bible, some of the biggest questions. In the end, it gives us hope for rebuilding this messy, this troubled world that we live in. And, and who can't relate? Who doesn't know that this world is messy, that it's troubled, that it needs rebuilding? I love the book because it, it gives us hope for God to rebuild the mess and ruin of our own lives. And if you're honest with yourself this morning, you'll know that you need rebuilding, that you need hope, that you need to see that God is the God who rebuilds and restores, not just in the world, not just in the church, not just in your small group, and your community. He, you, you need to see the hope that God restores and rebuilds you. So, so we're going to read that. We're going we're to begin the book of Nehemiah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the study because I think it will give us fresh faith and hope in the God who rebuilds and restores. So let's look together at Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll read it together. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And his gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the words you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed, you'd be dispersed under the furthest skies 
I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these words from so long ago would have an impact on our lives. God, I pray that you would affect us, that you would wake up a hope, Lord, within us, a hope in you, a hope in you, the God who rebuilds and restores. God, I pray that you would give us fresh excitement in you, Lord, a fresh faith and fresh vision for your ability to rebuild, your ability to restore. God, you are the God who rebuilds and restores brokenness. You are the God who rebuilds and restores broken relationships, Lord. Our broken relationship with you and with other people. You are the God who rebuilds and restores people and churches. And you're the one who will restore your kingdom ultimately. God, I pray that we would see you through this book. That our faith would increase in you. God, I pray for everybody here that you would give grace to hear, to to be alive to your words, to pay attention to you, Lord, and give me grace to speak in Jesus' name, by your Holy Spirit, amen. You know, it doesn't take much to figure out that this world needs to be rebuilt, needs to be restored. There's troubles all around. Things are crumbling, really, in some sense, all around. You know, you think that there'll be hope in in technology or there'll be hope in a new government or a new system or a new person coming in and yet you see that the world really does need rebuilding. There are problems all around us. All around us, the the ruins of man's best efforts, they, they are significant. People around us in some ways are more hateful and divided than before. Not only does the world need rebuilding, the institutions we're a part of need rebuilding. Um, the government needs to be rebuilt. The, the systems that we're a part of need to be rebuilt. The, the world does. The, the church needs to be rebuilt. We need rebuilding. You know, at times we need hope that God can rebuild the mess of our lives. And maybe you're here today and you are aware of broken down walls. You're aware of rebuilding that needs to occur in your faith in God. Rebuilding that needs to occur in relationships, rebuilding that needs to occur in your situation, in your life. In this opening chapter, we're going to see who it is. Who is this God who rebuilds? That's the first thing we're going to see. Right at the very outset, we're going to see who is this God. Nehemiah reveals to us who is this God who rebuilds. He, he starts off, though, telling us about who he uses to rebuild. Who God uses to rebuild. In Nehemiah 1.1, he says the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. No one knows who Hakaliah is. No one has any idea. He's nowhere mentioned anywhere else in all of biblical history. None of the Jewish history has anything. None of the chronicles anything about Hakaliah. Hakaliah is a nobody in some sense. And so really, in some sense, Nehemiah is too. Now he's, he, he turns out to be a man of some affluence. 
and influence, but he's otherwise just a normal, ordinary man. Who does God use? We see at the very outset of the book of Nehemiah. Who does God use? He uses a really ordinary guy. Now, this isn't just true in Nehemiah. We can see this all throughout history. He, he used this ordinary guy mentioned earlier named Abram from Ur of Chaldees. We don't know anything about Abram's history, really, besides what we see in the Bible. He wasn't notable. And God calls him out of nowhere to make a nation from him. Then he uses this obscure guy named Joseph. He was, you know, kind of bragging, proud, annoying little brother. If you have a little brother, please do not think of him as a Joseph. Or maybe please do because God will use people like that. He uses this obscure kid named Joseph. He was sold into slavery. He's in prison. He uses this, this guy to rescue a nation from despair and from starving to death. To rescue really the world at that time. He uses this obscure guy. And all throughout history, God uses obscure people. God used Hakaliah to bring about Nehemiah. You might not be a Nehemiah, but you might be a Hakaliah who has a Nehemiah. And all you get is one little line, the son of Hakaliah. God uses obscure people. That's how God rebuilds and restores. He doesn't typically do that through amazing, remarkable people. God makes obscure people remarkable, but it's God who's remarkable. And you think about that all throughout history. Even, you know, the, the great reformer, Martin Luther. Who in the world was Martin Luther? He was an obscure monk in Germany that God raised up. And he tacked some thesis on a door, and God used him to rebuild his church. And all throughout history, you see that, that God uses obscure people. And even in the New Testament, you see that it says that not many are wise, not many are are brilliant, not many are that noble, not, not many of you are really impressive, and yet God uses the unimpressive things of the world to, to bring about his purposes. And we see that in the book of Nehemiah, and that should give us hope that God uses ordinary people like Nehemiah, who God raised up from an obscure dad to be great among his people. He's an ordinary person, but he's concerned for the plight of God's people. You notice in his prayer, he is concerned for the plight of God's people. He's not just concerned for the temple walls and rebuilding. He says, how is it going? Look down your Bibles. Look what verse that is here. Hang on a second. He asked them concerning the Jews in verse 2. He asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who survived the exile. And also concerning Jerusalem. He was concerned for God's people. He uses people who, although obscure, are concerned for God's people. He uses people who are concerned for God's people and his purposes. And then he's also concerned for Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the place where worship of God takes place. God uses people who are concerned about his people and his worship. And that's what we can see in, in Nehemiah. as an ordinary person concerned for the plight of God's people and concerned about the worship of God. And he asks his brother, Hanani, who we really don't know anything else about either. Hanani, his brother, and some other men come back. They've taken a trip there, and they come back from Jerusalem and Judah, and they make a report. A few years before that, Artaxerxes, who will find out and at the end of this chapter, the very last verse, verse 11, Nehemiah works for him, the king of all Persia, the emperor. He... He had actually made a decree because he felt threatened by 
the rebuilding efforts, and he made a decree that the rebuilding efforts should stop and that they should cease automatically and put them down. And then Nehemiah is wondering what happened as a result of that decree that happened a few years ago. What's the result of that? And so he hears from them, and they tell him the story of how now the walls that had been being rebuilt by, by Zerubbabel and Ezra, those walls that had gotten halfway up, now they've, now they've been reduced to rubble. And the gates that were put up, those have been burnt again. And so the people are left unprotected. You might wonder, why in the world are walls so important? You know, we don't have walls around our cities anymore. And hopefully, we, we don't have walls around our cities in the future. Um, we, we don't understand the whole notion of wall. Walls, though, are meant for protection to keep safe. Walls were how the people could go about and function in safety and confidence and security, knowing that what was built around them was strong and secure. And so he's concerned the people are in jeopardy. The people are in danger. The people are insecure. The people are vulnerable because those walls are not stable. And so he's concerned for them. And he's upset about that. And he's upset that God's temple is unprotected. He's a person who's also grieved by the plight of God's people and he's grieved by the lack of God's worship. He's not surprised. You see in verse three and four, he's not surprised that Nebuchadnezzar many years ago tore things down, but he's surprised that, wait a minute, I thought that this was gonna be, a rebuilding was gonna happen. I didn't know that God was gonna allow these walls to be torn down. What is going on? And he's grieved. And he's so grieved. Look in in verse four at his response in in Nehemiah 1, four. He says, as soon as I heard these words, he says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying. He is undone. He's grieved by this major blow to his people in the city. He's sad and he grieves and, and he weeps over Jerusalem. He's sad and you wonder, wait a minute, isn't he really far away? He's far away in the land of Susa. He's, a, he's at least a thousand or fifteen hundred miles away, somewhere around that. And he's far away from his people. Why would he grieve so much? Because he is concerned that God's people and his purposes, what will God do? It seems like God's people and his purposes have failed. They're in jeopardy. It seems like God's plans are in jeopardy. And so he's grieved. He's grieved by the plight of God's people. He's grieved at the lack of God's worship. He's grieved when he sees God's people suffering. And I think there's there's a lesson there for us. Are we grieved when we see God's people suffering? Are we grieved at the plight of God's people? Are we grieved when the church suffers? Are we grieved when this church suffers, when other churches suffer? Are you grieved when the advancement of the gospel seems like it's being thwarted in some areas? Are you grieved by that? Do you grieve when people fail to worship God? God uses a, a person who's grieved over the lack of worship of God. He's who are grieved over the plight of God's people. And he's not just grieved, though. He says he, he weeps and he mourns for days. And he, he says he fasts and he prays. He's not just grieved, but he does something about it. And you think he doesn't just take action immediately. You know, so often my tendency is when I see a problem or a need, I can start making solutions and plans. And I can start trying to fix things. You ever, you ever do that? You ever have a problem in your life and you think, you know what? I'm just going to fix this right now. And I'm just going to get to work and I'm going to fix these things. But it, it doesn't say that Nehemiah did that. Even though we know that Nehemiah is a man of action. 
We see later on in the the whole book of Nehemiah, he is really a, a man of action. But he doesn't start there. The first place that Nehemiah responds, what kind of person God uses to rebuild is a person who's devoted to prayer. And Nehemiah says he he prayed and he fasted for days. And then he gives a month and at the end of this chapter and beginning of chapter two, he gives another month and it's about four months apart. And so the implication is that Nehemiah is fasting and praying for four months. He's a person who's devoted to to prayer, he's devoted to depending upon God. That's the kind of person that God uses to rebuild and restore, somebody who's devoted to prayer, somebody who's devoted to depending upon God. But he doesn't give up when things seem sad and hopeless. He's a person who trusts in God. That's the kind of person God uses, a person who trusts in God. He doesn't remain sad, he seeks the help of the almighty God who's greater than his boss, King Xerxes, Artaxerxes, who he says is, at the end of this one, a man. He realizes who Artaxerxes is. He's just a man in relation to God. And Nehemiah knew who God is. Look down your Bible. It says he is the God of what? The God of heaven. Nehemiah, he's, he's a man who trusts in God, and he knows who God is. Do you know who God is? Do you trust in God? Do you see God for who he is? Do you see that he's the God over all earthly gods? You know, what insurmountable situation do you have in your life? What, what difficulty do you have in your life right now? Is there a challenge in your life right now? Is there something that you believe can't be fixed? Is there some wall that's been broken down in your own life? Is there a wall that's fallen down, not only in your life, but maybe your small group or your church or your community and And you're wondering, can God really do this? Look up and see that God is the God of the heavens. God's the God who's able to rebuild all things. We we can grieve over trouble. We can grieve over loss. We can grieve over hardship, but don't stop there. Go to God in prayer and fasting and look to God, the God who's over all the heavens. It's so easy for things that were strong once to be weakened, for gaps to form in areas that were once strong in our lives. You know, sometimes the walls of our integrity can, can fall to the fiery darts of the evil one. Sometimes the walls of our faith can be assailed. And the enemy in opposition can make us weaken. Where we thought we were strong before, maybe in sharing the gospel in another area, now we might be timid and shy. And you think, well, can I ever be what I once was? Will God ever remake me into the man or woman that I'm supposed to be? You know, maybe you've been criticized so much in your life that the walls of who you are in Christ have need patching. Maybe we feel fear of failure so much now that we, we begin to do things in our own strength and seek to control and we're frustrated when things don't go our way. And, and you, you're grieved by those things and you need to see that, wait a minute, I can come to God in prayer and fast because God is the God of the heavens who rebuilds. There's hope in God. You know, maybe there's places you were once strong in your marriage, now that are weak and from attacks and inattention. Maybe there's places that you were strong in your parenting, and now you realize that, wait a minute, those things are shaky, and there's glaring gaps and holes, and, and, and now I see that the, the enemy seems to be getting through, and, and areas that I thought these were strong that were walls, and you know, it might help us see where there's hope to rebuild. 
Maybe you've wandered away from the things that were strong in your life because of hardship or difficulty or pain or suffering or some other assault. It should grieve us, but it shouldn't stop us. We shouldn't wallow or be sad in our grief alone. We should look up and see that God is the God of the heavens. And the kind of person that God uses to rebuild is a person who prays, who fasts, and who sees God and trusts him for who he is. Will you do that today? Will you trust in God? Will you turn to him in faith and see that God is a God who rebuilds? Rebuilding it begins with a dependence on the God of heaven who alone is mighty and strong to save. Maybe we need to follow Nehemiah's example of fasting and prayer. But then he knows the content of his prayers. He prays informed by the character and the nature of God that comes from a keen awareness of God's word. Nehemiah is steeped in God's word. That's the kind of person who God uses to rebuild. Not only that, it reveals who this God is who rebuilds. Who is this God who rebuilds? Nehemiah reveals that to us. Look down at verse four. It says, before the God of heaven, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Do do you know God like that? Do you know God as the God of heaven? Do you know God as the great and awesome God? Do you know God as the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love? If not, you can know God like that. If not, Nehemiah is meant to show us who the God is who rebuilds. From the very beginning, we see in the Bible that that God is the God over all creation. He's the God of heaven. He's above all things, and he's greater than all things. He's the God of all creation. That's who Nehemiah is appealing to. He's revealing to us who this God is who rebuilds. He's the God over all the heavens. He's transcendent. He's great. He's above all things, and yet it says he's also near to us in that He's a covenant-keeping God. He's not only transcendent, but he's imminent. He's with us, ever-present. He's a covenant-keeping God who is steadfast in his love. This is the God who rebuilds. And you can trust in him. He's not like a cold, calculating, distant lawyer. He is a God who keeps steadfast love. His love is steadfast, reliable, unmovable, unrelenting. And Nehemiah knows that. Nehemiah has been familiar with that through being steeped in God's word. He understands that from all of Israel's history, that God is a covenant God. And do you see that? That despite the failings and mistakes in your life, God continues to be merciful and faithful. He continues to pursue you with an everlasting love. Even his calls for you to repent or or his desire for you to turn to him, for him to rebuild. It says he's a covenant God and he loves those who keep his commandments. And that's both good and scary, right? If he loves those who keep his commandments, that's really good because there's hope. If you keep his commandments and God will love you. You say, well, wait a minute, is this, is this all about works? Well, well, no, because Nehemiah in a little while is gonna confess that he's not kept God's commandments. And so there's a hint there that really Even the guy who God uses to rebuild is unable to keep his commandments, but there is one who has kept God's commandments. The ultimate Nehemiah, Jesus is the one who's kept God's commandments, and that's who our hope is in, that that because our faith is in Jesus, that, that he has kept all God's commandments, God will maintain his steadfast love to us. And then he he makes a bold appeal to God to listen to him, to see him, to answer his prayer. 
And to make such a bold prayer, one has to be very sure they're standing before God. Are you sure of your standing before God? Are you sure of his steadfast love that is on you because of Jesus? Because you're trusting in the obedience of Jesus in your place. Nehemiah's prayer, he, he prays fervently. He prays an aspect, there's an aspect of intercession. He prays for the people of Israel. He confesses the sins. And we see that God is a God who responds to the humble. And he calls people to respond to him in humility. Nehemiah confesses, he says, the people of Israel broke in covenant. They've acted corruptly. They've disobeyed not only commandments, but the statutes and rules. And then he says, I am my father's house. We have also disobeyed. God is the God who responds to those who humble themselves. How do you approach God? Do you approach God humbly? Are you aware of your need for God? Are you aware of your sins against God? Do you confess those things to God? He responds to those who are humble. And then look in verse eight. He responds to people because he is faithful. He responds because he is faithful. God is faithful. Who is this God who rebuilds? He is a faithful God. And we're gonna see that throughout the book of Nehemiah. The people of Israel were definitely unfaithful. And so Nehemiah asked God, remember his word. He says, God, the people have been unfaithful. And because of their unfaithfulness, they've been carried into captivity. And you have been faithful to your promise. God, you've been faithful to your promise so far. And, and here's something odd that he does. He, he actually calls God as a witness to his own faithfulness. and says, God, you promised that if your people break covenant, that you'll scatter them. And God, you've done that. You've been faithful. But God, I ask you to be faithful to your other promise that if people return to you, you will rebuild, you will restore. And God is faithful to rebuild and to restore all those who return to him. God's promises are true in his word. And Nehemiah calls attention to God being faithful in what he said. And then he appeals to that second half. Look in verse nine, he says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though you're dispersed be under the furthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen to make my name dwell there. God is faithful and he has a purpose. We can see God's purposes in Nehemiah. God reveals his purposes in rebuilding through Nehemiah. Or maybe said another way, Nehemiah reveals God's purposes in rebuilding God's purpose is to rebuild his people, to restore his people, to bring them back to him into covenant relationship with him, into fellowship with him, into a place where they can worship him freely, into a place that he's chosen to make his name dwell. God has a purpose for rebuilding. And sometimes that purpose has little to do with our kingdom and really much to do with him. God's purposes in rebuilding are about bringing a people for himself to the place he's chosen and to make his name dwell there. And, and what a great and glorious purpose that is. And he gives us a purpose to live for as believers. God's purpose in, in rebuilding is to bring us back and to make his presence dwell with us. And Nehemiah prays based on what God reveals in his word. And, and maybe you're thinking, I, I don't know how to pray like that. Maybe you feel like you can't pray and you can't ask God anything because maybe you feel like you aren't deserving. Nehemiah wasn't deserving either. I don't really know any hero of the faith in the past who in, in themselves was really deserving. You know, if you look at all the heroes, the patriarchs in, in history, of it, Abram, he failed multiple times. He lied about who his wife was almost 
almost got her married to the king of Egypt, and Abram failed. Isaac, he fails. Jacob was the deceiver. He failed. All throughout Israel's history, the people of God failed. But our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in that God has a purpose to bring us back to himself and to make his presence dwell with us. And that's what his promise to Abram was, that he would, he would bring a people for himself through Abram, that he would make his presence dwell, that the nations would come to him through him. And, and we see in Nehemiah that God is beginning to do that again. And then he makes a point in Nehemiah 10. He says, they are your servants. Look down in verse 10. He says, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Nehemiah reveals how God rebuilds. God rebuilds through people who are his servants. God rebuilds through people who are his servants who, who are looking to build his kingdom and not their own. Wh- whose kingdom are you looking to serve? Whose kingdom are you looking to rebuild? God rebuilds through his servants. And then it says something else. Whom you've redeemed. God rebuilds through people who have been redeemed. And then he says, God redeems by his strong hand. God rebuilds by his strong hand. Maybe you're lacking faith that God can rebuild, but it's God who rebuilds through servants, through slaves, through people who are submitted to him. And God rebuilds through people who he redeems. And God rebuilds by his strong hand. Maybe you're lacking ability. Maybe you're lacking strength today. I would say you probably are. Maybe you're weak Maybe you're finding yourself in a weak place. God is the God who rebuilds by his strong hand. And then Nehemiah reveals something else to us. Look down in verse 11. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. God rebuilds to those who delight to fear in his name. He says, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And we see really in those final two lines of this closing verse of this chapter, he says, and give success. There's a a prayer for success and a prayer for mercy. And then he says something. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. And he says, oh, there might be hope. There might be hope here. God reveals hope for the future rebuilding. Through Nehemiah, he reveals hope for the future of rebuilding. Nehemiah is not just asking for the forgiveness and restoration of the people. He's asking that God would give himself mercifully and give him success in the sight of Artaxerxes. And so there's hope that in Nehemiah's prayer, he has a hope-filled prayer. There's a hope-filled prayer, not in his ability, but in God's ability to give success. And Nehemiah understands that God is able to give success, that God is able to give his mercy. In whatever situation or circumstance you are facing today, or you've been facing, or maybe you look at your life and your circumstances, you think there's no hope. There is hope in God who rebuilds, in God who gives success, in God who gives mercy, that he's able to place people like Nehemiah, in the presence of kings and to bring about change through these simple, obscure people. 
If Nehemiah was to have any success, the king would have to overturn his decree. Artaxerxes had given a decree, the building stopped. And so Nehemiah is desperate. And he prays that God would give him success. But yet there's hope in his prayer. There's hope that God would overturn Artaxerxes' command and decree. And that's something that kings did not do, especially the law of the Medes and Persians. They, they did not go back on their, on their laws. And so he prays, God, would you give me hope for success? Would you give me mercy? Now, Nehemiah, he tells us a little bit about who he is here, and he is the cupbearer to the king. And you think, well, what's the big deal about a cupbearer? A cupbearer, wasn't that just somebody who went to the king and he hands him a cup? Well, well yes, but in, in the Persian government, the cupbearer was very important. Because not only did he help preserve and protect the king's life by tasting whatever the king drank, he put in place trusted individuals to make sure that everything, when it was first harvested to when the king drank, that it was pure and had no poison in it. And then he himself put his own life on the line for the king by tasting before the king was going to drink something. And often those people who were put in place were trusted individuals and they were looked at as counselors or confidants of the king. And so a cupbearer back then was not just somebody who bore a cup. They were somebody in an exalted position, somebody who was um, perhaps an administrator or a counselor of the king. And so he says, now I was cupbearer. And so there's hope even in his title and who he is, that God might use him to influence the king, that God might use this one man to make changes in all of his people. And there's hope in God who's, who's placed Nehemiah, the son of some obscure man, in this exalted position. And God is gonna use this man, and we'll see throughout the book of Nehemiah, to restore and, and to rebuild not only a wall, but a people who are set apart for God. A people who worship God. That's, that's why the book of Nehemiah is important. That's why the book of Nehemiah is essential for us to see is that how God rebuilds and restores a people for his own possession. How does God protect his people? How does God rebuild his people? How does God bring a people to worship him? And there's hope in God who rebuilds. There's hope to rebuild you. Hope to rebuild this church, to rebuild his kingdom, to rebuild his purposes in the world. How do we respond? We can respond to God like Nehemiah did. We can respond grieving where necessary, repenting where necessary, turning to God dependent prayer and then hoping in God for success, hoping in God's mercy that God will rebuild. And if you look at the book of Nehemiah, the, the book of Nehemiah ends with this place where the reforms that he's put in place, they, they kind of don't work and Nehemiah finds a lot of things that are wrong. He goes away for a while. He was governor for 13 years. He comes back at between chapter 12 and chapter 13. There's probably about 12 or 13 year gap. He rebuilds things. He goes away confident. He comes back 12 or 13 years later. And then chapter 13, he finds that people are defiled the temple. They've, they're sacrificing at, at odd times. They're, they're bringing goods into the temple on the Sabbath. They're doing all kinds of things. They're intermarrying. They're disobeying God. And he gets really angry. He does some weird things. He pulls people's hair out. He beats people because he's concerned for the purity of the worship of God. And at the end of things, he says, God, I did all these things. Remember me. And so he's hoping. He's, he's, he ends the book of Nehemiah. And it ends both in disappointment and hope. And we're meant to, to see that that way. 
And then something else to know is that Nehemiah was actually probably the last historical book written in the, in the Old Testament. Although in our Old Testament, Malachi comes last. It's Nehemiah that was probably written last. And so really for 400 years after Nehemiah, there is this anticipation of, God, this can't be all there is. You promised to rebuild your people. You promised to bring hope. And yet where is the hope? And so for 400 years, it seemed that God was silent. And yet God is a God who is merciful and he speaks and he spoke again through his prophet John. And then he spoke again through Jesus and he brought about hope, true hope and a better Nehemiah. And all throughout Nehemiah, you're going to see parallels with Christ. That, that Nehemiah was, was someone born in an obscure town or obscure area to an obscure father and yet God used him mightily. Jesus was God, but he was made man and he was in an obscure place. He was born into a poor setting. And yet God raised up his own son, born into human flesh, and used him as the ultimate deliverer. The ultimate one to appeal to God, the ultimate king for mercy. God, the ultimate king for deliverance. And God uses Nehemiah to show us really who Jesus is. That Jesus is the one who brings a people back, who establishes a people for God's own possession. Jesus is the one who builds God's kingdom and its walls will not be shaken and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Then Nehemiah shows us what our ultimate and our true hope is in Jesus. And then we can see the end of the book, the end of this story here in Revelation that Jesus is the better Nehemiah in whom we can hope. Revelation 21.5, and I want to end with just some passages from Revelation. It says in Revelation 21.5, it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God's the God who rebuilds. He's the God who makes all things new. Then look down your Bible. It says, And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. There will be one day when his building project will be done. He says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Then he says a few verses later in verse 9, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in his spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. God's ultimate intent is the holy city. God's ultimate one to rebuild is the Lamb of God, Jesus. And he says, I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a high, great wall with 12 gates, and the, tw- the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of 12 tribes, the sons of Israel were inscribed. There will be a day when God finally and fully rebuilds and restores through his ultimate Nehemiah. Then in chapter 21, 22, he says, And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. We're meant to long for that day when God's presence is finally and fully with his people. But now, today, God's presence is with us in the person of Jesus. And he doesn't make his presence in an earthly temple anymore, but he makes his presence 
in, in the temple that is us, really, through his Holy Spirit. And then look in, in verse 22, chapter 22 of Revelation, it says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, and he's describing here the ultimate Jerusalem. He says, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life, with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will the ending accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Nehemiah is meant to point us to hope in the God who rebuilds. Nehemiah is meant to point us to the future hope that we have, but the hope we have here and now. That God is the God who rebuilds. He's the God who restores. He's the God who makes all things new. Maybe there's an area that you have lacked faith for in your life or lacked faith for in this church, this church, or maybe the church generally, or maybe you've lacked faith in some other area. God is the God who rebuilds and restores, and one day he will rebuild all things. He will rebuild his city and make all things new. He is mighty to save. Amen? Let's pray, and then, um, Joe, if we could sing the song Mighty to Save, that would be a great way to close, I think. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us hope in you who rebuilds, hope in you, the God who rebuilds and restores. And Lord, may we cry out to you humbly, trust in you dependently, and look to you for mercy and power to save us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.